Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the, the Headlines. Headlines. Coming to you from the American Society of International Law. So welcome to our roundup of the 2019 UN General Assembly highlights. Uh, for this episode, Cal and I thought we'd do something different and just go through some of the, the high points and discussion around what is probably the most important gathering of international leaders on an annual basis. But before we do that, Cal, do you want to go a bit into what UNGA is all about? Sure. So UNGA, or sometimes known as UN Week, is something that happens every September uh, in New York. And you can think of it a bit like the kind of World Cup of diplomacy. You've got uh, usually dozens and dozens of heads of state, foreign ministers, and other top-level officials coming in, heads of government, of course, coming in to New York for a span of, of about a week. And in addition to speechifying in the UN General Assembly, uh, which is a kind of an important part of the story, there's a whole set, I think this year, close to 600 bilateral meetings that occurred and lots of informal meetings and lots of other conclaves that happen in and around the UN building. So it's a pretty amazing time for international politics and international law. And that's one of the reasons we thought this would be something to talk about for a bit. And the only thing I would add is that it definitely just hearing the speeches, hearing the kinds of themes that that get kicked around during UN week or UNGA gives you a sense of really what the hot spots are in terms of the world, in terms of international law, international affairs. And therefore, it's a very closely watched time for people interested in those kinds of foreign affairs issues. I but agree. I, I agree. Yeah. And I think, I think I think you see. Sorry, I was go just going to add on to that. That you you can tell by what I know. Last year, for example, we're going to talk about climate in a little bit. Last year, that was the most mentioned topic in uh, the various speeches given in the General Assembly by heads of government and heads of state, and that's an indicator of where people's minds are. And I think that the Secretary General really summed it up best, perhaps, in his address, in which he really tries to put forward the themes or issues that should be taking up the airtime in terms of the consideration by the world leaders that are present. We are living in a world of disquiet. A great many people feel fear getting trampled, swarted, left behind. Machines take their jobs, traffickers take their dignity, Demagogues take their rights, warlords take their lives, fossil fuels take their future, and yet people believe in the spirit and ideas that bring us to this all. They believe in the United Nations, but do they believe in us? Do they believe as leaders we will put people first? Because we, the leaders, must deliver for we, the peoples. Excellencies, people have a right to live in peace. What does he mean by living in a world of disquiet? Now, some might say that's diplomatic speak and that what he's talking about is living in a world that seems to be growing more and more chaotic. And the other aspect of what he said is the belief in leaders. Do they believe in the United Nations? Do they believe in the leaders of these various states and about the very basic notion that people have a right to live in peace. And these are grand notions, but it is the 
architecture of the UN system to think about grand notions such as world peace. And that, I think, is him hearkening back to the great traditions of the entity, or in at least getting leaders to think about what those traditions are in terms of peaceful dispute settlement and what their role is in actual bringing to ground what those dreams were. I agree. I think it's worth considering a little bit of what the role, not only of the UN in general and of UNGA specifically, but also of the Secretary General, uh, both today and historically. And I think what's interesting about Gutierrez's his address is that, you know, traditionally Secretary Generals have played. Some people have called it a kind of secular pope role. They certainly have a bully pulpit that allows them to reach a lot of people and certainly a lot of world leaders. And, and this week in particular is one in which Gutierrez had, uh, I'm sure, hundreds of meetings, if not dozens of meetings, um, with, uh, with world leaders from, from all kinds of places. And he, through that, is able to nudge and push and bring things to the fore that often get forgotten. And I think that's partly what he's trying to do in this speech, and it's partly what secretary generals have tried to do going back probably to, to Hammerschold. I think that's a, a really good point in terms of harking back to those traditions. And the other aspect of UNGA that I always find fascinating is when you listen to the various events, and there are many, and many of them in the form of receptions, when you listen to the themes that are being developed, you start to get a sense of what are the, the issues that are, are predominant in the minds of world leaders, as complicated as the world is, there are definitely some themes that emerge. And I think we're just going to do a brief stop through some of those themes. Um, I think the one that struck me the most, and I felt like actually uh, got to the point of almost dominating not only sessions that are devoted to thinking about peaceful relations, but other sessions that had nothing to do with it is Iran. It was very much based on the timing of UNGA. It came up at a very sensitive point in terms of the tensions between the U.S. and Iran. And what I'd like to do is just go through a very crash course on what some of those tensions had been leading up to UNGA and then talk about the developments there. So in terms of the U.S. and in Iran, the Trump administration uh, has seen a real escalation in terms of the 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 friction between these two countries. And many, of course, can source it to the U.S. pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal and un just upending the sanctions understandings that underpin that agreement. There was the uh, claim by President Trump that he'd taken defensive action, this was in mid-July, to down an Iranian dr uh, drone over the Strait of Hormuz, which is, as most know, is a very strategic passage in the Gulf. Uh, Iran de denied that incident. And shortly before UNGA, there was the attack and the targeting of Saudi Arabia's oil fields. And that started off a lot of finger pointing in which the Saudis, albeit they said they were still, quote, investigating, pointed the finger almost immediately at Iran. Uh, President Trump, in his speech to the UN General Assembly, not only criticized the 2015 nuclear deal, but called on other countries to confront Iran. And in the midst of UNGA week, we had the UK, France, and Germany statement all saying that they believe that Iran was responsible for the drone strike. So this was obviously very fast developing. And what we had were a series of interviews and engagement by the leaders involved in this potential conflict. And one that struck uh, chords with many was the interview by the Iranian foreign minister on CBS. Who do you think did it? I don't know. I think the Yemenis have 
announced uh, declared responsibility for it. They have even shown evidence that they launched this attack. So uh, I should take it as that. But if the United States believes that the Yemenis were not behind it, first of all, why did the, why did the Saudis retaliate yesterday against the Yemenis? Why did the, they break the UN brokered ceasefire in Hodeida mm. and retaliated against the Yemenis? They did that because they all know where it came from and how it should end is through an end to the killing of innocent children, women, elderly, that has been going on. 100,000 people have been killed. Over 2 million cases of cholera in Yemen. Mm -hmm. Now, everybody is concerned about an attack on an oil refinery, which based on the latest information that I have, didn't even have a single casualty. 100,000 innocent human beings, not enough, but a refinery is an imminent threat. Do this, you accept? This is, I mean, I think, I think the moral compass is totally lost. Do you believe, are you confident that you can avoid a war? No. No, I'm not confident that we can avoid a war. We, I'm confident that we will not start one. But I'm confident that whoever starts one, will not be the one who finishes it. What does that mean? That means that there won't be a limited war. And the Saudi foreign minister had his own views, which he set forth in an interview at CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations. We believe that Iran is responsible for the attack because the equipment is Iranian equipment. It is not our business to tell the Iranians what their government should be like or who their leaders should be. What we want is we want an Iran that acts as a nation state, Iran that respects the sovereignty of nations, that respects international laws, that doesn't interfere in the affairs of other countries, and then we will have an Iran that can be a good neighbor to us and that doesn't support terrorism. Then we will have an Iran that will be a good neighbor to us. We can trade, we can, we can be friends, because at the end of the day, we're neighbors. The Gulf separates us. They've been there for thousands of years. We've been there for thousands of years. We have no intention of leaving the neighborhood, and I doubt they, they have any either. So we need, but they need to behave like a good neighbor. That's what we're waiting for. Since the Iranian revolution 40 years ago, all we've seen from Iran is death and destruction. One after the other, after the other, after the other. It's a consistent record of evil that's got to stop. And the idea that by signing a deal that is substandard and not dealing with missiles and terrorism, uh, that the Iranians will get all this money and then they're going to say, this is really great, let's be a normal country, I think was wishful thinking. The problem with the Iranian system is you have two sides of it. You've got the regular system, Rouhani and the foreign ministries and so forth, that talk but don't seem to deliver. And then you've got the Revolutionary Guards and the Quds forces who control a big chunk of the Iranian economy, and they're the ones who are on a rampage. So if those who want to talk to you can't deliver, and those who can deliver want to kill you, well, it's, it's like we're in a dilemma here. They need to make up their mind. Are you a revolution or a nation state? So obviously there's finger pointing. Obviously both sides, while they're not talking to each other, appear to be trying to address the world, which is key theme and I want to come back to in a minute. But what we have is Iran, on the one hand, denying and also uh, setting out that if, if this reads, leads to conflict, that their expectation is that this would be a protracted conflict. 
And on the other hand, you have the, the Saudi foreign minister really speaking in terms that appears to say that they would be satisfied only with and what they have referred to in other contexts as an internal solution in which the current Iranian regime is toppled. So uh, this is obviously high stakes uh, talks in terms of two, two leaders um, directed at each other in the midst of what appears to be a, a huge flare up that could actually lead to armed conflict. But at the same time, in the spirit of UNGA, in the spirit of the best traditions of the United Nations, you have these leaders present together in New York City actually addressing these issues in the sense of diplomacy. There is the sense that you get that both sides feel it's important to actually persuade the international community of their view. And in a way that's not just a matter of getting their media spin out there, but potentially avoiding armed conflict. And isn't that what all of this is about in terms of a convening power of the United Nations? What do you think, Cal? Yeah, no, I agree completely. And I think this is a great example of uh, Eisenhower early on in the UN's history talked about the UN as, I think he said, the man's best organized hope to substitute the conference table for the battlefield. And I think this is a good example of that role. The UN and UNGA specifically have a couple of nice features. One is everybody's there. It is the United Nations. It allows the format and the way that UNGA is structured, and this applies more generally, allows the the sort of ad hoc meeting to occur that maybe couldn't otherwise occur or discussions on the sidelines about a particular issue, all of which can be de-escalatory and, and very positive, obviously not always, but it's at least a, a possibility. And I think we saw some of that here. And as you pointed out, Catherine, it gives a, a chance for nations to make their case both to their peers, but also to the media. And, you know, as we saw with the Saudi foreign minister, the reason they go to the Council on Foreign Relations, you know, isn't that they're bored. They want to go and and speak to people that they think are potentially influential, as well as give them a platform to make that case why this issue should turn out this way and not that way. Uh, so all of that is really salutary, even though it can seem like a lot of talking. That's so much better than the alternative. And so I think this is a this is a good example of the UN actually working as uh, as it's intended. And ultimately, while it's been very high stakes in terms of the diplomacy, the verbal diplomacy, thus far we have managed to avoid an actual armed conflict. Of course, every day uh, that goes by, there is additional flare-ups, there are different dynamics and moving pieces, but so far we, it hasn't gotten to the point of triggering an armed conflict in the, in the region uh, involving Iran. Uh, so it is, though, Iranian experts will, will tell you it's a see-as-you-go kind of point in time where it is absolutely true that the level of tension right now is, is, is almost unprecedented. Uh, and that takes me to something else that is, that is a bit unprecedented, is, is the level and the severity and how bad the relationship is between the United States and Iran. Uh, and that's not something that I've seen since the the hostage crisis. The kinds of the language that's being used, particularly by the White House with respect to Iran, is really the the language of hostility, of war, uh, and something that that obviously everyone is playing paying very close attention to. So at UNGA, um, President Trump obviously uh, addressed Iran in his address. One of the greatest security threats facing peace-loving nations today 
is the repressive regime in Iran. The regime's record of death and destruction is well known to us all. Not only is Iran the world's number one state sponsor of terrorism, but Iran's leaders are fueling the tragic wars in both Syria and Yemen. At the same time, the regime is squandering the nation's wealth and future in a fanatical quest for nuclear weapons and the means to deliver them. We must never allow this to happen, to stop Iran's path to nuclear weapons and missiles. I withdrew the United States from the terrible Iran nuclear deal, which has very little time remaining, did not allow inspection of important sites, and did not cover ballistic missiles. Following our withdrawal, we have implemented severe economic sanctions on the country. Hoping to free itself from sanctions, the regime has escalated its violent and unprovoked aggression. In response to Iran's recent attack on Saudi Arabian oil facilities, we just imposed the highest level of sanctions on Iran's central bank and sovereign wealth fund. All nations have a duty to act. No responsible government should subsidize Iran's bloodlust. As long as Iran's menacing behavior continues, sanctions will not be lifted. They will be tightened. Iran's leaders will have turned a proud nation into just another cautionary tale of what happens when a ruling class abandons its people and embarks on a crusade for personal power and riches. Iran citizens deserve a government that cares about reducing poverty, ending corruption, and increasing jobs, not stealing their money to fund and massacre abroad and at home. After four decades of failure, it is time for Iran's leaders to step forward and to stop threatening other countries and focus on building up their own country. It is time for Iran's leaders to finally put the Iranian people first. So Trump's address is interesting for a number of reasons. One, he obviously attacks Iran and and focuses on Iran in a number of different ways uh, that are consistent with the points you made, Catherine, a moment ago. Uh, but he also makes this kind of broader claim uh, throughout his speech about uh, this kind of battle or struggle between sovereigntists and globalists or patriots and globalists in his language and really takes a stand uh, in favor of, of obviously sovereignty and and what he conceives of as, as patriotism. And in that sense, it's consistent with the stance the Trump administration has taken generally uh, in international law and international affairs, and also the view they've had towards the UN, which has been pretty, um, I would say, fairly negative. Uh, they had first put Nikki Haley in as ambassador. We just went close to nine months without uh, a permanent person there, which is probably unprecedented in American history. 
And all of that is, I think, consistent with this sort of disdain for the UN as a useful tool, uh, let alone something that's a real um, positive vision for the future. And I think that's unfortunate. I think that I agree with you entirely, Cal. And, and the other aspect of his speech that I thought was was interesting, or at least notable, is is the idea, and he he brings this around, he goes through some grievances with with respect to Iran, and then he settles on two themes of interest. One is this notion, he, as he puts it, all nations have a duty to act. It's the idea of this collective action, that there is a looking at alliances and, and utility of alliances and leveraging the diplomatic, uh, that diplomatic speak. And so you have, even in a, a president that's utterly hostile to the UN, its entities, and, and frankly, in many, many respects, the work of, of the UN in every sphere, is still kind of a hearkening to collective action. And I, I think part of the, the tension, inherent tension in his speech, is that on the one hand, there is that criticism on the other is using a bit of the, the language of, of collective action, responsible governments. Uh, the other thing is, is this idea of populism. And I think populism is a misnomer for uh, how it's been used with respect to describing some waves in Europe, with respect to describing uh, uh, some waves in the United States itself as to the people versus the government, and that it's a populist uh, trend that's leading to what tends to be what I would call isolationist and nationalist policies coming to the forefront. And it's interesting about his speech is that he's talking again to the Iranian people, that it's time for the Iranian people to come first. And again, that is this populist thread that, that he's woven through this as well. And a lot of times, as you know, Cal, these kinds of speeches prepared for high-level offici officials are very much and it may not be the case in this administration, but in other administrations are very much pondered over with different agencies and policymakers with different perspectives actually contributing so that every comma is, is reviewed, every word is meticulously selected because of all the reverberations, because of all the implications. So it's almost an art form in terms of creating these speeches. So I'm taking that approach to his speech, but I have to say that I'm not sure the Trump administration actually engages in the same uh, process that I'd be familiar with, for example, in the Obama administration. So it's possible I'm reading way too much into this, but I did think those themes were interesting. No, I agree. And I think, I think you're right that one thing we've learned about the Trump administration is that um, it has a certain disdain as well for internal traditional processes of American government. And certainly in the national security realm, we've seen that time and again. So I don't think your instincts are wrong. So another major issue at UNGA this year, and in fact, for the past several years, has been climate change. And I think the fact that climate change has loomed uh, so large, and particularly this year loomed so large in UNGA proceedings, reflects a few things. One, uh, the severity of the crisis. It is, uh, it is in fact, uh, an ever-growing, uh, ever ever-accelerating crisis, which despite a lot of time spent, the world has not really moved the needle very far uh, in terms of actually diminishing the rate of change in, in climate change. And that's disturbing. And I think more and more evidence of that has come through. And so increasingly, nations are genuinely worried, uh, as well as civil society groups. And we saw, we saw many manifestations of that at, at UNGA this year, maybe most notably 
uh, the very passionate and um, highly media covered address by 16 year old Greta Thunberg. Um, but in addition, this is an issue that I think works to the UN's favor as an institution. And it's something that the Secretary General, in this case, and past SGs as well, have recognized that climate change is a good issue for them politically and something that they can uh, they can kind of wrap their their legacy around uh, and also uh, gives them a, a way to to kind of combine their interest in in the poorest of the world, the least developed, the most vulnerable, which has always been a, a core concern as it should be for for secretary general secretaries general uh, with uh, something that's uh, operates uh, at the core of some of the biggest powers so uh, it requires a lot of careful diplomacy to get nations on board for anything meaningful, and I'm not I'm not sure we've achieved that yet. Uh, but this year's Climate Action Summit was an attempt to really uh, kind of begin a process that's a bit more UN focused and and serious than things we've seen in the past. So um, so I think that's uh, that's one of the reasons that climate change has loomed so large. And I'll add one more thing before. Uh, turning things over to you, Catherine, for some reactions, is uh, the UN has for years wanted to begin this process of sustainable development goals, um, building on the Millennium Development Goals, which were fairly successful in terms of providing indicators and allowing nations to begin to think about hitting some targets and assessing their progress in, in kind of numerical terms. The SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, are, are different in many respects, uh, but they have at their core this idea of sustainability. And that's not just a climate issue, but it certainly dovetails with it. And that's something the UN as, as an entire organization has really focused on for the last couple of years. And so all these things have come together to make climate one of the core issues uh, for ANGA. So, um, so why don't I stop there? And Catherine, let you chime in on anything you, you want to add to that. Well, you, you said something interesting, Cal, which is that the UN realizes that this is a climate change is an issue that's ripe for its kind of action. And on that, I completely agree. But I think that there's a, a countervailing the theme, which is that while it is absolutely ripe for global action, because it's frankly a global problem and the solution requires collective tools to actually succeed, it is ripe in that sense, but it's also been the source of some of the greatest disappointment in what the UN can achieve through true multilateral action and collective action. And the experts have told us already that the Paris goals, and, and as you know, the emissions targets there are not binding, they're aspirational. But even if you take them as a good indicator of collective um, action, they're too low in the sense of actually averting climate disaster, according to many experts. So there's this keen sense of, of failure to fulfill the potential, the promise of the multilateral global system viewed through the prism of something that is existential, which is the climate change. And I think that that sense of failure, failure of the UN system, failure of our leaders to address this directly is what I see in the, as the undercurrent of some of the, the mass protests, the 16-year-old the who's inspired hundreds of thousands of young people to take to the streets and to frankly point fingers and say to the generations that preceded them, you are failing us. So it's an interesting issue in the sense it's got to be a global solution through collective action. It's tailor-made for entities like the UN. At the same time, I think it's showcasing 
some of the weaknesses of the proposition. Yeah, so, no, that's absolutely right. And it, in many ways, I mean, this topic has been on the UN agenda since Rio in 1992. And for a long time, I think it felt like something that was in the future. And it was a serious issue. Certainly environmentalists and environmentally minded political leaders recognized the, the, the threat posed, but it did seem like something that would happen later. And I think one of the things that's changed, at least rhetorically, and we see this w- with the, the kind of youth activism that's relatively new, is a sense that it's actually here and it's here now, and that the, as you, as you rightly said, the trajectory uh, that we're on is not going to make a difference, a meaningful difference. And in fact, we're, we're hurtling towards a very, a very serious and very scary outcome. And so I think that sense combined with things that may or may not be directly linked to climate probably are, like increasingly severe storms, hurricanes, you know, hot, hot, hot summers repeatedly. I think all of that has made many people realize that it's actually happening and this isn't just something that's going to be in the future. Whether that will translate into meaningful action is a much more difficult uh, thing to predict because the costs of action are large. I mean, we are moving forward. Um, You know, I'm sitting here in California right now and California certainly has taken, you know, huge steps in terms of decarbonizing our economy. But even so, uh, we have a long way to go and, and we're just, um, you know, we are the fifth largest economy in the world, but that's a drop in the bucket in a sense compared to someplace like China or for that matter, India, uh, who have a huge uh, role to play, uh, all of Europe, et cetera, not, none of which have really taken action that is commensurate with the threat. So I can't disagree with your your pessimism on that. Yeah, and it's, it's I think, though, that um, having thrown down the gauntlet, it's really up to individual countries to to focus on the issue domestically because it's only by electing leaders who are willing to see this as an existential threat that needs to be addressed globally that we can actually crack this nut in terms of multilateral action. So I am pessimistic, but I'm also optimistic because I see a completely energized um, population, especially our youth on an issue that's so critically important that can play into, you know, being citizens of our country, our respective countries and citizens of the world. So I, do, I am optimistic in that respect, in the, in the sense of the, what I see as the civic engagement of, of our youth. Yeah, I completely agree. We both have kids and I'm sure your kids were, were, you know, coming home with questions and learning about these issues. And I think that's true in many parts of the world. So that does give us a little bit of hope. So why don't we close out the episode with a little bit of discussion on kind of the big picture and where where does the UN fall? What's the what's the role it's currently playing? I mean, these are trying times uh, for an organization devoted to peace and multilateral cooperation. I, I think I'll, I'll end where I began, which is the the interesting aspect of the United Nations as a convener that that very critical uh, role and responsibility of the UN is often overlooked, but it's certainly paramount in UN Week or UNGA, where just the mere fact of bringing these world leaders into each other's vicinity, even if they don't engage directly, engaging through proxies, which is a longstanding diplomatic tradition, actually moves the ball in the sense of 
using these institutions to leverage peace. So again, I end on a note of optimism because I think that that's the utility of it. But that proposition is sometimes lost in the national dialogue and discourse that's becoming more and more bitterly partisan. But we have to remind ourselves that these first principles are very important in the stability and peace of, of the systems around the world. I couldn't agree more. And I think the UN is often, you know, many people have pointed to the idea of the UN as both an actor and a stage. And the actor part is probably overblown in most cases, uh, certainly in from the perspective of a, of a P5 member like the US, the, U, the UN doesn't act a whole lot in a, in a very direct way, though it acts in ver- very important ways in the developing world. Um, but as a stage, it's incredibly important. And that's really what ANGA is about. And I think that you're absolutely right to, to highlight that. I think the real danger going forward is, is always to keep the, the great powers engaged and viewing the UN as an important uh, part of their broader foreign policy portfolio. And I think, uh, you know, certainly the Russians do view it that way and they devote a lot of attention and, uh, and effort, and they put their top people in at the UN. Um, the U.S. has been more definite, and I think that's something that I hope will change in the future, and we will see you know, renewed attention uh, and seriousness around the, the role of the U.N. and the U.N. ambassador, but uh, only time will tell. 